she woke up in the middle of the night to the sound of strange footsteps outside of her apartment. And it sounded like they were ascending the stairs, coming up to the first landing, pausing, and then going beyond her to the second landing. This was then followed by dead silence. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of Dark House Season 2. I'm Hadley Mendelson. And I'm Melissa Fiorentino. We're your co-hosts. And if you're new here, every episode focuses on an allegedly haunted house or an otherwise infamous home. We dig into the backstory behind the haunting. We'll tell you who lived there, who died there. And we'll tell you all about the spirits that might still be around. That's right. And we also try to emphasize the house as the main character, telling you a bit about its architectural allure and what makes it so visually, physically creepy. And today it's Hadley's turn to tell us a story. And Hadley, today's house is completely haunted, right? Very haunted. I think easily the scariest house that I've ever read about. But I'm also extra excited because this one is right in my hometown, San Francisco. And I think that part of the reason the story is so completely horrifying is the backdrop itself is just perfect for a spooky story. The city itself is full of so many unique homes that are very easy to personify because they all look like they have these really distinct kind of whimsical or flamboyant personalities. Every single Victorian has a different color and a different sort of like weird turret or, you know, things like that. I've never been to San Francisco, so... I'm excited to metaphorically journey. I think you would actually really like it. I honestly feel like if I went to California, I wouldn't come back. Yeah, I think so too. So during parts of the pandemic, I was able to spend more time at home. And I actually got to walk by the house that we're talking about today a few times. It's 1000 Lombard Street. That's the address, which is a pretty iconic address too, for a few reasons, which we'll talk about in a moment. Here's how today's episode is going to work. It's actually part one of a two-part haunted house story. So this week, I'll begin by telling you about San Francisco's unique and enchanting history and background. I'll focus on the Russian Hill neighborhood in particular, because that's where the house is. And then I'll describe the actual building and the street. But most of today's story is going to focus on one woman's experience living in a flat in 1000 Lombard Street. Her name is Pat, Patricia Patsy Lou. She has a bunch of different nicknames, Mont and Don. And she wrote a book called The Intruders in 1975 about all of her strange and eventually really horrifying experiences in the house until something, someone sinister sort of pushed her out of it in 1969. All right, that'll be this week. And then next Wednesday will be the second half of Pat's experience at 1000 Lombard Street. Have you heard of The Cursed Apartment by chance? No, but I feel like I should have. Was it never made into a movie or anything? So, okay. Apparently, like, different people have tried to buy the rights, but it just hasn't yet. And I don't know. Maybe something someone will hear this episode and that'll be the thing that gets the right person to read the story and buy the rights and turn it into a movie because it really, really should be. Definitely the scariest book I've ever read. The fact that this one is not fiction, it's a memoir, really, I think, adds to the element of this could happen to you. Okay. It's also something that if you scare easily and you're a woman who lives alone in an urban environment, I would listen with caution. That's how scary Uh-oh. it is. Like it, this probably would have made me want to move home or something if I had found this when I was living alone in an apartment in LA at the top of a hill. Good to know. Okay. 
How about before we go to that, though, I jump in and give you a lay of the land of the Bay Area. Let's go. I think San Francisco is a beautiful city. The beauty of the natural landscape is just impossible not to take in. Also, the fog. In San Francisco, we call him Carl the Fog. It feels like it has a personality, like this slow creeping. It depends on the mood you're in when you're talking about it, but I find it pretty eerie. And it just blankets the city and obscures everything. So sometimes you'll be driving early in the morning and visibility is super low. Even if you're familiar with the streets, it can be so disorienting that you can get lost, even if you know them like the back of your hand. It's kind of like that image of the fog being so thick that you have to follow the taillights in front of you. And if there aren't any, like, good luck. Also, beyond just those visual things, one of the other things that sets the mood is there's these kind of sounds that fill the city that people get used to. There's like the cable car ding. There's the Tuesday at noon earthquake fire drill sound. Oh boy. I know. And then also the foghorns, which I remember falling asleep to almost every night. And it kind of can sound like a sweet romantic lullaby. But as Pat writes in her book, she says that they also hoot mournfully, Mm. which I think is a really nice and accurate description. (laughs) So I do feel like one of the things that can't be overstated is walking anywhere there. The inclines are insane. It's fully like as if you're going on a hike. And it kind of just paints a picture of this like rugged yet city center, which is an odd combination. (laughs) Before the mid 1800s, it actually already had a rich history. There were indigenous communities living there for centuries already. But then the first European contact was with Spanish explorers in the mid 1700s. And they developed some missions and a military base called the Presidio, which is like a massive park. I'll just say here that the Presidio is haunted as hell, but I'm going to save my own ghost stories about it for a later date. And I'm also giving you the very, very skinny version of this. But basically, they built the Presidio and then the mission. And Spain lost the Mexican War of Independence in 1821. So they gave them the Presidio and the mission. It lost influence. So did the whole Catholic Church, really. And by 1848, the U.S. won the Mexican-American War. And so at that point, the Mexican government ceded the territory to the U.S. And that's when San Francisco, the American version, was born. And so... Like basically a year after we get the gold rush. And that was a period of immense boom, but also doom and gloom. Even if you look at like propaganda of the time, though you would see pictures of the sunny golden promised land, there was also this Westworld level of lawlessness and greed and everyone was looking for treasure. So the California dream was born then. And I think for many, a nightmare as well, because they couldn't find what they were promised. And it really reminds me of Hotel California, that song by the Mm -hmm. Eagles, you know, the siren song of, of the golden dream. But really, it was all about hedonism and greed. Anyway, the city developed rapidly from there. And the population grew from like 1,000 to 25,000 in a year. And then from there, it just like exponentially continued to do that. 50 years later, at which point there's lots of money there, railroads, everything like that makes it easier to access. It's a port city, so it has lots of potential. And it's hit by a massive earthquake that then caused devastating fires throughout the city in 1906. To give you a sense, this quote from Jack London, not in history has a modern imperial city been so completely destroyed. San Francisco is gone. They had to rebuild from scratch, though. Shout out to my house. It survived the 1906 earthquake. And when I was a kid, that was like my ultimate flex. So not all of the houses were destroyed, but 
in the area that we're looking at, a lot were in Russian Hill, Knob Hill, Telegraph Hill, like the areas that were closer to downtown. Almost all of the city records were also destroyed. So anything that was lost in that fire, the houses are noted as being built in 1906. And so SF is documented kind of in this like before the fire and after the fire manner. And the neighborhood that we're going to today is one of the city's oldest and hilliest neighborhoods. It's sort of between Fisherman's Wharf and downtown. So let's go to Russian Hill. First of all, legend has it that Russian Hill got its name because Russian soldiers and fur traders from a nearby fort were buried there in unmarked graves. And every single block in the neighborhood ends in just an amazing view. It's also one of the few neighborhoods where there are still functioning cable cars zipping up and down the hills. And probably the most famous block in Russian Hill is Lombard Street between Hyde and Leavenworth. And it's where today's house is located, which honestly, when I was first researching, I was like, no, that can't be. That's too good to be true that it's on this really iconic street. Is it the one that's got the zigzag hill? Yes, exactly. So you may have heard of it because it's on the most crooked street in the world. And there's lots of really beautiful old apartment buildings. And the hills are so steep that several of the streets in the area had to have stairs built into the sidewalks. So kind of that combination of rusticity and elegance. But the earlier homes right after the gold rush were really, really extravagant and grand. And then houses in the area started to be more middle class in the early 1900s. There are some that are kind of more in the like Italianate Victorian style, some Mediterranean revival influences. They're really, really beautiful. Fun fact, Mr. Hurst. William. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He grew up in the area. And then at the top of the block... There's another famous house that Fanny Stevenson lived in, and she's the widow of the man who wrote The Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Mm -hmm. But Lombard Street, the reason that it is curved is because in the 1920s, when cars were invented and becoming more popular, it was a 27% grade, which is way too steep for the cars to drive down. So the city agreed in 1922 that they would reduce the grade to 16%. But even then, they had to create these hairpin turns and then they paved it with brick. Until the 50s, though, it was just a residential street. It wasn't super famous, but a wealthy guy who lived on the block went to France one year or something and saw that there were lots of hydrangeas in the roads to beautify them. So he took that idea and planted a bunch of hydrangeas in the median. And a few years later, a photo was published in the newspaper. And by the 60s, it was in a postcard the tourism increased by like 200,000 people a year or something Mm. wild. So now anytime you go there, it's just filled with tourists taking their photos. And you can see why, but it also seems kind of like an overwhelming place to live on, especially, can you imagine pulling out of that driveway? I can't even imagine living on a busy street. (laughs) Living on a street with actual traffic, are you kidding me? I wouldn't back out of the, I wouldn't go in the driveway at all. My parents had to get me some exposure therapy sessions because I was so afraid of backing out of our driveway. Oh, I don't back I don't back into our driveway today, just in general. So it's a wild expectation. Uh, anyway, it worked. I can do it now with not without dinging the car, but I'm no longer anxious to do so. Do people drive? Would you say that the people who live on the street would still have cars and things like that? Yes. They do. People drive a lot in San Francisco. There are buses and you can walk. But I mean, there's a reason why it gets this reputation of everyone wearing Patagonia. It's not just because everyone is kind of like a tech bro or a hippie. It's also because it's just practical. Public transit exists, but it's not like New York where you can zip around in the subway really easily no matter what corner you're on. Mm -hmm. 
but 1000 Lombard Street is kind of hard to see from the street. There's trees covering it. It's really offset. If you look in like Google Maps or something, you'll notice that it's the furthest back in all of the properties on that block. So it's kind of hard to get to. And today's house began as a family home. And before that, there are legends that it was a site for public executions. What? And like I mentioned, we already know that it was where Russian people were buried. Hmm. So because it's on the most south side of the street, right at Leavenworth, and that bottom end of the hill was dynamited in 1906 to stop advancement of the fires. We're not really sure when the home was built, but it was sometime after that and before 1915. And it was built by an attorney and his wife. After a bit of a goose chase through her landlord, Pat was able to find their nephew. And he verified that the couple who built the home was called Vernon and Sophie Cranston. And according to him, the basement was used as a treasure room for all of her art and collections. But that's the main like little kernel he's able to share about the home. And both died of natural causes in the building, according to him. Mm, okay. So at some point by the mid-1900s, it changed hands and was converted into apartments. And I just, as someone who currently lives in a converted townhouse, that really creeped me out and kept me up because you think you're safe in an apartment, but mm, used to be a house. I do want to pause right here and let everyone know that it would be helpful if you are in Wi-Fi to Google the listing 1000 Lombard Street right now so that you can follow along with me as I'm walking you through what the house looked like. But if you don't, I'll also try to give you enough details. When I first showed Alyssa the listing, she said, this looks like 17 houses in one. <laughs> and that's because it was broken into flats in the 50s, like I said. And it has three different main levels. Though most recently, it seems like they've tried to convert that basement into another flat. But it looks to me like literally punishment quarters in the bottom of a boat for a drunk sailor. <laughs> it's so weird. And it has weird trap doors that are an odd level. It just, it's nowhere I would ever want to live. It doesn't have the cute storybook charm from the Jean Harlow house or something that you've described before. It just gives me weird vibes. And it doesn't really look like one cohesive home, though you could tell that it was formerly a house. And the architectural style in that vein is kind of hard to pin down too. Basically, you walk up a bunch of steps from the street. And once you get there, it's split into different units. And so you have to go up several more staircases to get to each level. I'll just say also that because it's on the corner, if you're looking at it from the Leavenworth side, you can see just how tall it is. And in terms of style, it has sort of neoclassical details and decoration with more modern structural elements. It's painted white, but there's certain Mediterranean columns and things like that. Now let's go to how you navigate the interiors of it. As you walk on the stairs outside, there's the courtyard area. And then you go up another set of stairs into a foyer, leading you to apartment number two, which is where Pat lived and where we're spending most of today's episode. So you enter from the front and there's a living room that you see and it has pretty views. It's not as grand as you would expect it to be given the location. It kind of looks slightly outdated. When she moved in, her landlord said, you can have this lower rent if you have it exactly as is, aka no renovations or updates. And she was like, yeah, of course. And there's a corner fireplace. And so it maybe is a flex wall or something because it ends halfway through the room and the fireplace follows the parameter of that corner. So it extends to both sides, which means that it can warm it especially effectively too. And once you walk through the living room area, you continue going 
down to the right and there's like a few steps down and you're in a sunken dining room and then you turn left and you're at the kind of outdated galley kitchen, but spectacular views of like Coit Tower and all of these things. And there's also a little like balcony terrace off of that room. So from the other side of the living room, you can also get to the main bedroom, which also has an enclosed little balcony. And next to that room, there's a small office. And that room also has a terrace slash porch that you can enter through an all glass sliding door. It's a second entrance. Is that the one that I really liked? The sunroom one? No, that's upstairs. Okay. So that's not her apartment at all? No, that's not her apartment. Damn. If you guys are looking at the listing with us, this is probably the one that you wanted it to be in because it's so gorgeous. There's a grand sunroom with really beautiful windows, a sunroof or a sunroof that's for a car. What is it called? A skylight. (laughs) And there's certain like Mediterranean revival elements. She calls it the ballroom. It has really high ceilings. And the time that Pat lived there, it was empty. And the unit below her was occupied with someone who I think she gives a pseudonym. She calls her Evelyn Walker. So today we're going to call her Evelyn as well. She was almost never home because she was usually traveling for work. So this massive house, and she's basically the only one in it. Now that you have the lay of the land, let's go meet Pat. Our protagonist is called Patricia Montadon. And she was born in 1928 and grew up in Oklahoma. She's one of seven kids. She's gorgeous. She kind of looks like a slightly more commercial or down-to-earth Grace Kelly. Just really classic and pretty, but approachable too. And by the time she moved into the house on Lombard Street, she was in her early to mid-30s. And she had already been divorced twice, actually. Once she was married when she was 17. And on Facebook, I found this like old post where she called him Mr. What's-His-Name. So we also don't care what his name is. And another was to this flamboyant attorney who was kind of famous, but they quickly got it annulled. She's single at this point. She's a writer. So during her time on Lombard Street, she was hosting a TV show at a local news channel. And she also had a column in the paper. So she was very much a career woman. And she's always been a storyteller, but one of the things that made her stand out and what she really used to kind of market herself to build her career was that she threw these really memorable themed parties for rich, famous, and interesting people like Andy Warhol and Ted Kennedy and the daughter of Ingmar Bergman. Esquire also apparently named her best hostess in the country one year. Wow. This was really, you know, an integral to her branding and marketing in order to launch her career as the 20th century version of like an influencer. Even though she was fully self-sufficient, she herself claims that she spent almost all of her money on clothing and travel and throwing lavish parties. So it's not like she had a ton of money to help her get through the period of time that we're about to go into. During the end of her tenure on Lombard Street, she got her first book deal, which was called How to Be a Party Girl. So that really gives you a sense of like, that was her brand, right? And I haven't actually watched it, but apparently there's a character based on Pat and Tales of the City, which starred Laura Linney. So she's an important figure. Since I'm talking about Pat so much during this episode and in next week's episode, I wanted everyone to hear her voice while I'm reporting on her experience. So here's a quick clip that she posted on her YouTube from one of the shows that she hosted in the 60s while working for a news station. It's a little fuzzy because it's old and it was a home video that she taped of the recording, but... It's still really fun to hear. So here she is. Another party I went to, I'm always reminded of uh, other parties. I looked at my silver and I couldn't believe it. And I looked at my neighbor's silver and I still couldn't believe it. Mine said Plaza Hotel, his said U.S. Navy, and right on around, even the centerpiece was stolen. Our friend was a thief and he ended up in jail. It made for great table conversation, but I don't think you need to go that far, do you? 
And someone just came in and handed me Esquire magazine. I'm in it. Esquire? I never thought I would be an Esquire or Playboy or any of those. But it's about people who give super style parties. And they have, you'll have to get it and see because they have a stupid caricature of me. I've never looked like that in my life. And she moved into 1000 Lombard Street, number two, on December 27th, 1960. She lived in it peacefully for a long time, about six and a half years, with the last few not being so great. And by 1967, she was feeling very overwhelmed and busy and honestly pretty lonely. So she was kind of wanting to make new friends. But at this point, she decides it's time to find an assistant. So she puts an ad in the paper for one. And a woman named Mary Louise Ward, we're going to call her Mary Lou today. She was a recent widow. And in her early to mid 40s, fun fact, her birthday is October 11th, which is Ooh. Annie and Hallie's birthday and the parent trap. So we already love her. But she applied for the job and she had just lost her husband unexpectedly one year prior and had three children. At the time, her youngest was 12 years old. His name was Jimmy, her son. And then she had a daughter named Robin who was 17 and living on a commune, which given the time of, you know, like the mid to late 60s. Was it a commune? Was it a cult? Yeah, what? And then Jeannie was the eldest, just shy of 20. So personality wise, Mary Lou is really cheerful, great with people, chic, put together, able to solve all of Pat's problems as Patsy Lou, which she calls her, puts it. So Pat needed help keeping track of all of her appointments, scheduling, and then trying to keep up with fan mail, which it would be her version of engaging with her fans in the comment section on Instagram or something. So she really needed help with it. She got lots and lots of letters. And one of the letters that they bonded over initially was this one where a woman was asking for a love potion. Ooh. Yeah. Why would they think that she could give them a love potion? I don't know, honestly. Maybe it was like, woman a woman, do you got any advice for... I don't know. Yeah. (laughs) But Mary Lou had this idea that they should reach out to this local black magic figure who was famous in San Francisco at the time. So Mary Lou reached out to him and plans a date to go visit him at his house and ask about a love potion. This man who Pat described as a Satanist. And at first I was like, okay, she's just being judgmental. And then I was like, no, because it was the Anton LaVey, aka the founder of the Church of Satan. And they made plans to go visit him at his very grand old Victorian on California Street. And it's since been torn down and turned into apartments. And it has lots of creepy little oddities that she describes secret rooms. There was a tombstone used as a coffee table. There was a cavernous cellar room type place that you entered through a trapdoor that was used for his witchery courses. And this part is full-blown disturbing. In this massive glass case that blocked a trapdoor was a deformed human skeleton on display. Well, yeah. And then he also drove a coroner's van as his mode of transport. Oh, and he had a pet lion in the backyard. Really? Yes. One more weird connection is Anton LaVey was apparently interrogated by the FBI about a plot to murder Ted Kennedy, who was at some of Pat's parties. So just strange kind of small town connections all around. And I think that this is the first time that she ever has even remotely dabbled in the occult and it was still all in good fun. So during their stay there... They were served a champagne flute with like purple and pink liquid. Uh Uh-oh. And she wanted to be polite. So she was like, thank you, but obviously nervous. And her and Mary Lou were just like eating it up, having fun. And I guess they get the, you know, recipe for the love potion. And they don't even know if it worked for the woman or not. But I just really like this anecdote because one, it sounds like a little play date that we would go on, but it's a precursor for everything that's about to happen. So at this point, 
they are like, okay, we're besties. And they start planning a big party for Pat to throw. And this is really where the trouble starts, according to Pat. They quickly landed on an astrology theme for the party, complete with the decor. They also hire a palmist, a fortune teller, an astrologist, and a tarot card reader. And her landlord was really chill and let her use the floor above her, the one that you were saying is so pretty because it was unoccupied at the time. And they would tent all of the rooms and just turn them into these really like transportive kind of scenes. I don't know what she even did with her furniture, but I'm sure it looked like a tornado ripped through the room after these parties. (laughs) The night of the party, everything was going smoothly, except that the tarot card reader was running late. And everyone was having fun, so she wasn't too worried about it and just eventually kind of forgot until at one point, she sees a man beelining toward her in the dining room kind of manically. He's small, he has bright red hair and a big beard, and he's wearing a green velvet getup with feathers in his hair. And he'd brought a weird entourage who wasn't invited. So Pat gets weird vibes immediately and recognizes it as the tarot card reader. She also mentioned that she'd never met him before. It was kind of like a random reference that she found through a friend. And she was kind of annoyed, but she kept it poised and... He asked her for a drink immediately. She says, oh, of course, let me go get you one. She gets him all set up with his table and she fully intends to get him a drink, but she's busy hosting, which is harder than I think we all realize. A good host, as she points out, is mingling around the entire time trying to like separate incompatible people and then getting rid of the clinging vines, but doing it gracefully. And so after a while of doing that, she checks on him at his table and he's just enraged, like feathers shaking and his Mm -hmm. hair level enraged. And he screams, you forgot my drink. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. She apologizes and is about to pivot to go get him one. And he interrupts her screaming, swearing at her. And she just sums it up as a stream of abuses. So I don't know what he said to her, but it wasn't nice. And he was storming out about to leave and shouting, you'll never be happy in this house again. Oh, no. (sighs) Yeah. Like, he just sounds crazy. Maybe like even coked out. (laughs) But plenty of guests witnessed this interaction. And in her book, in the end, there's a little section where she includes letters from people corroborating a lot of this. And so some of them say that they witnessed that interaction. And then there's also a man who witnesses the interaction, who she meets at the party that you're going to meet in a bit. But I'm going to put a pin in that and come back to it. So basically, in retrospect, Pat starts to think, did he curse me and the apartment? Because she didn't really take it seriously until things really, really unraveled. And there's no name for this guy? No, she never, ever, ever told us his name. I think because she was scared of him. Did you Google like redheaded tarot readers, San Francisco, 1960? Oh, yeah. I literally did. And then I was like, this is stupid. I can't find them. I mean, red hair. It's pretty distinct. He sounds like a leprechaun a little bit. The green outfit. I know. He does. He does. And like the feathers. It's weird that he got all dressed up and was like ready to go. And then it's like just a dick. Like, why'd you come then? And who's your entourage? I need to hear the rest of the story before I make any calls. Despite that interaction, she felt like the party went pretty well. And since it was part of her career strategy, she relied on good press about her parties. And 
It happened to coincide with a newspaper strike because a lot of her good friends were journalists. They called her up and comforted her about the lack of coverage, saying it's a good thing that they weren't working right then because someone called and talked shit. And she was like, obviously, it was the tarot card reader because he calls and was like, she was so rude to me, all of this stuff. And it's got to be him, right? So a couple weeks go by and she's not really thinking of it. And she spends a day over the weekend shopping with this guy she was dating named Warren. And when they get home that night, she has a weird feeling walking up all of the many stairs to get to her door. And she notices that the opening to the foyer is unlocked. Okay. You're scared? No, I'm just like, here we go. Yeah. And it's always closed with a deadbolt. And her own front door was ajar too. She quickly realized that she'd been robbed and called the police. She got robbed? Yep. I didn't see that coming. Mm -hmm. Well, the crazy, the funny thing about it is the way she wrote it, she maintains her sense of humor. Like her and Warren were even kind of laughing. The newspaper headline was party jet set girl gets her lion cat stolen. And it was a mangy little rug that people were referencing. And she was like, why does everyone think I'm loaded? I'm literally not. It kind of reminds me of two movies. Have you seen Just My Luck with Lindsay Lohan? Put it on your list. Okay. I'm not going to give it away. Anyways, it also reminds me a little bit of Uptown Girls. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I get that. Totally. Favorite movie. Obviously not the same, but her being a party girl and having this reaction to being robbed, kind of laughing it off, I think makes sense. I wish I could have that attitude more, but... I know. Well, she's kind of a combination, actually, of like the two characters in Uptown Girls. Anyway, that night, she starts feeling a penetrating chill in the house. Hmm. Even with the heat on and the fireplace roaring, she felt really cold. And San Francisco can get cold, especially because it has this like dampness from the mist and the fog. It's not like New York cold, it never snows. And so she had the landlord check the boiler multiple times and it was always in fine working condition. Then two nights after the break-in, she woke up abruptly from a deep sleep without any apparent reason. And the alarm said it was 2 a.m., which is going to gain increasing significance. Another early red flag was that her dog, named Dog, slept on the little screened-in balcony right outside her bedroom, and he was always very chill and low-key, but then suddenly started whimpering and scratching at the door all the time, even though until then, he never had any issues. So a few nights later, she woke up in the middle of the night to the sound of strange footsteps outside of her apartment, and it sounded like they were ascending the stairs, coming up to the first landing. Okay pausing, and then going beyond her to the second landing. Hmm. This was then followed by dead silence. So during this moment, Pat went onto her little balcony trying to see what it was, craning her neck around the side. That's what I was thinking, like, okay, go outside Mm -hmm. because you have access to a view. Yeah. And finally, when her curiosity just trumps her fear, she decides to go check. And she had to walk out of her front door to the little foyer, but you know, there's like a second door. So she could kind of see the shadow of something that didn't move and was resting against the door up the next set of stairs. And as she opens the other door slowly, a wreath of dead flowers falls from it right onto her. And at this point, she knows that someone is messing with her. So the constant cold mixed with dog's unrest, not sleeping well, and then the signs of like being targeted by someone was wearing on her. And Mary Lou also started to get kind of concerned and started to give her a little more time to rest and lighten up her schedule a bit. But she could just never find peace when she was home trying to unwind. And other friends would come over kind of worried about her too. And they didn't like being there either though. There was this indescribable discomfort in the apartment. Hmm. And around this time, as things are 
just not great for her. She gets a call from her younger cousin, Carolyn, who was in her early 20s. And she asked Pat if she could stay in the spare room for a while. And though Pat valued her independence, she was relieved to have company. And she did have a sofa bed in the office. This is where Carolyn stays. So a few nights into her stay, Pat was awakened by the sound of distant music. She was annoyed because it seemed like it was going on a loop. And eventually she gets up and she was surprised to see all the lights on in the living room and a frantic Carolyn pacing around, also trying to figure out where the music was coming from. Mm. She looked out her kitchen window to see below, thinking maybe her downstairs neighbor, Evelyn, was up and playing music. But as usual, her downstairs neighbor was on a business trip. So she didn't want to scare Carolyn. She wasn't sure in that case if she should mention the weird things that had been happening. But after it just wouldn't stop playing as if it were kind of like skipping on a record player, she realizes the name of the song. And it's called Mockingbird Hill. Alyssa, I want you to go listen to Mockingbird Hill. Okay, hold on. I'm just going to turn it down. It's about... (laughs) What's your impression of the song? Well, you know in that movie Insidious where they play Tiptoe, that stupid song? No. You don't... Oh, no. You have to watch that. (laughs) ruins the song but it's this like really upbeat shrill voice and was originally supposed to be just a nice happy song Mm -hmm. so to me like this doesn't sound scary but I think if you were actually in the room with these two girls and it won't stop playing and you can't find it you'd probably freak out yeah I'm not familiar with like that artist or anything but well I think it's just like a random old school 1950s song you know upbeat and sweet but we know what happens underneath upbeat and sweet so Eventually, Carolyn turned to Pat and said, there's something weird about this apartment. And at this point, Pat realized that the song was coming from within her own walls. Try as she might to come up with excuses about how it could be ricocheting off of buildings elsewhere and then making it sound more intense in her apartment. She got the sense that it was coming from inside. Eventually, it dies down and they get to sleep. But at this point, her obsession to learn more about possible explanations for some of the odd sensations and occurrences like really kicked into overdrive. So the next day she decided to go to the library to research the paranormal and was looking for both advice and explanations about just possible things that could be going on, like a curse. And she also reached out to one of the astrologists from her party named Fritzi Armstrong. And even though she didn't really take it seriously or believe in any Zodiac stuff, when she called her, Fritzi said, oh, Pat, I I hadn't wanted to tell you but I've had a horrible time since your party. I fell down the steps when I was leaving, hurrying to get in my cab and my leg is badly injured. It sounds like she wasn't the only one who things started to go downhill for her after that, right? Then they get into this conversation from there with Pat summing up the events as this. The house is always cold, even though I have had the heaters checked. There was a burglary and I hear footsteps, but haven't seen anyone. And what's shaken me the most is I heard music from coming inside the house and my cousin heard it too. Fritzy offers to give Pat a reading to see if she can find anything in it that Pat might find comforting or helpful. And so she asks her for some personal information as well as her move-in date. Meanwhile, weird things were happening with her car. She got her car stolen twice. Someone once crashed into it. The guy she was dating was also experiencing weird things with his own car when he would park on her street. So that combined with the bad vibes of the apartment just makes their romance fizzle. Remember how I told you she met someone who witnessed the man yelling at her and cursing her at her party? Mm -hmm. 
So this guy, Earl Raymond, is his name that she gives him, at least. I don't think it's his real name, but he's an architect. He's handsome. She found him to be witty and funny, and he kept making jokes about the tarot card reader cursing her during the party. And he's asked her for her number, and he said he'd give her a call soon. And she's all excited about him finally giving her a phone call. What is he dead? No, no, no. He, he calls her finally. All right. Maybe he'd be better dead, honestly, because just wait. So he seemed promising. And even though first red flag, it took him forever to actually call her. But they meet for lunch and they see each other sort of sporadically. But soon things get kind of weird. This is an example she gives. He'd show up at her apartment unannounced. And as she writes, he would pace back and forth, touching the living room walls, collapse on the sofa, then fall asleep. Hmm. And she said that she would try to wake him up and kind of like get him out. And he would mutter oddly while he was asleep. Weird. Really huge red flag. I think he instantly struck me as someone to stay away from, but something about him was attractive to her. In those days, it was customary for single women to need an escort for more formal parties. And she asked him to go as her date to a black tie party at the Getty's house in Pacific Heights, which is a quick 10 minute drive. But to put it succinctly, the night was horrible and he was extremely embarrassing. Listen to what he does. He made a toast in front of everyone at this like black tie party He says, I'd like to toast to Pat, who has been hearing voices lately, and I think we can help her. I'm going to perform an exorcism. So before she could stop him, he dips his fingers, his probably fat, ugly fingers, in red wine and makes a cross on her forehead. It dripped down her like blue silk evening gown and stained it. Just so degrading in front of everyone. Are you not supposed to give a toast if you're not one of the hosts or somebody close to the host? Like, wouldn't that be terrible etiquette? I mean, I'm pretty sure you're not supposed to like pour a glass of wine on someone's head either. Yeah. But it gets worse. He keeps making a scene. He starts coming on to another woman saying, I'm going to have sex with you tonight, standing on a chair. Hmm? So Pat is mortified and she's ready to leave. And she asks another guest that she was an acquaintance with if he'll take her home. But this infuriates. Earl even further. He follows her outside and it's pouring rain, of course. And her beautiful dress is like clinging to her now. It's like soaking wet. And all she has on her mind is getting home. This honestly sounds like a horribly traumatizing experience. I don't blame her. But as the valet pulls his car up, she gets into it because she's thinking to herself, well, at least he's going to drive me home now. And as Earl is driving her home, he has a total meltdown and I kid you not, tries to kidnap her. All the while screaming abuses, like slut shaming her, making fun of her anxieties, saying no wonder she's been leading him on. No wonder she's so crazy, all this stuff. And she said that the feeling she got in the car was that same feeling of evil and unease that she'd been feeling at home lately that she couldn't put her finger on. And as they were driving down Broadway, he shoots past her area and says he wants to drive her to his house in Tahoe. And he locks the doors to trap her. And she realizes she needs to take a different approach. So she kind of starts placating him, like stroking the back of his neck, saying, I love you. I want to go to Tahoe with you, but I need to go pack a bag first. Can we please stop very quickly at my apartment? Which I think is really smart. Yeah, survival skills. Let's go. Yeah. So as they pull up, she gets out of the car, but she like leans over into his window and she's like, I would never go anywhere with you. I hate you or something like which then he gets out of the car and literally starts to strangle her. He grabs her by the throat. And it leaves it black and blue. I mean, he's the one who needs the exorcism. 
Yeah. Something is off. I think he's just a horribly toxic, abusive asshole, but I don't think he's actually possessed. Oh, I do. (laughs) He touched the walls. Maybe. Anyway, once he puts her down, he forces Pat up the stairs of her own apartment and she knew Carolyn was home. So she just wanted to get inside. And it was kind of a small comfort that someone else was there. So she rushes inside and he follows her into the house, of course. And she locks herself in the bedroom saying if he doesn't leave, she's calling 911. But she hesitated because she was scared it would only make him angrier and that they would think she was a neurotic career woman. And so if they did think that about her, then he would just be even more riled up that she had like called the police on him. But eventually she decides she needs to because he's not leaving. He won't stop banging on the door. He's laughing in a really creepy way. And when the police get there, she runs out of her room. And as she does, he locks her out of the apartment. But remember how I said that there was a kind of side entrance? Yeah. So she goes around and leads the police around. And... Her cousin Carolyn lets her in and she's kind of groggy. I guess it had... Wait a minute. Did Mm -hmm. you leave Carolyn out with the crazy guy? I think they were both in the habit of locking their own bedroom doors too. Okay. But yeah, Carolyn must have heard the commotion. I I don't know what she could have done to prevent it if she had to lock herself in her own bedroom. Anyway, they... Carolyn's really groggy, but she's awake because she'd heard Earl laughing and knocking on doors. And eventually... Once the officers get inside, they realize that he had at this point locked himself in Pat's bedroom. And when they finally get the doors open, he's stripped the bed and he's laying on it watching TV in his tux. That's weird. And it's just like filthy because like I said, it was muddy and rainy outside. So they get him out eventually. I guess he wasn't arrested because he just leaves. And the officers stayed for a while, but... Once she is in her room alone, she sees that he's gone through all of the pictures of her in her room and vandalized them by putting X's on her eyes. Hmm. So the whole night, she's like shivering, cold, stressed. She has a black and blue throat. I mean, she's just been assaulted. And she's kind of slept through most of the weekend and at this point developed pneumonia. So while that is all happening and she's unwell, we're circling back to the astrologist's reading that she had ordered a week or so before. And it was finally ready. It arrived in letter form to Pat. So I'm going to read you the main takeaways. Okay. She says, you moved into that house under vibrations of deep confusion and the promise of many heartaches and deceptions, intrigue and possible witchery. Suicides are strongly indicated due to the planet Neptune being involved. The psychic realms seem to be trapped in your home. She also notes that Pat has a clear white light pulsating through her, but that she's currently enmeshed in darkness. Her natal chart implies that she can kind of defy that darkness. And as she's reading all this stuff, she's skeptical, but creeped out at the accuracy. So she decides to stay strong. And Mary Lou is very much in the loop, but they kind of agree, okay, this is all really screwed up, but let's not entertain the possibility too intensely of the paranormal in a serious way. Let's just try to keep you safe and move on, right? Skipping ahead a month or two, Carolyn moved out and she went to Honolulu. And she was kind of helping both Patsy and Mary Lou as a secretary and the women realized that they needed help once she left. So they hired a young lady named Vera Scott who moved into that small bedroom. Around this time, she was wrapping up her first book, How to Be a Party Girl. And anticipating the press tour, she and Mary Lou realized that they needed to throw another party. And so she was filled with dread the entire time that the party was happening. One of the reasons that she just couldn't enjoy herself was that she kept imagining the person who like left the dead flowers on her doorstep in the middle of the night. And she kept thinking maybe they're right there in the crowd. Hmm. So about two hours in, the party's going on as normal and a huge fire broke out in the upstairs flat 
ballroom area because it was still empty at the time. And she just says it was an absolute miracle that everyone got out safely. But it didn't get good press, which wasn't great because the whole point was that it would. And Vera's room was in shambles that night, the new secretary. So she slept elsewhere. And she, from there, was like, this is the perfect excuse for me to get out. I'd been wanting to leave. It just didn't feel right here. And so she quickly left San Francisco and the job for Las Vegas to move in with a boyfriend. So it's back to just being Patsy and Mary Lou again. Hmm. Around this time, the landlord fixed up the third unit and then rented it out. Pat was initially thrilled because it made her feel less scared and alone but it quickly went sour because guess who turned out to move upstairs? Sketchy drug dealers. And about 10 men were living inside it at one point. And she would see people buying up on her stairs and nodding off and strangers would ring her bell at all hours of the night. They were also just really loud. And so one night when she heard a lot of people upstairs, she confronted them. She said, please, could you be more quiet at this time of night? I need to get sleep because I wake up really early. And they just kind of stared at her in silence. And the two main men who were probably on the lease were the ones who seemed the most menacing to her. Hmm. They also had these like huge guard dogs. And throughout all this, she called the police many times and complained to the landlord, but the landlord was now using like a management company to um, handle it and he couldn't do anything, even though she was kind of close with him and he seemed like a nice guy, but she didn't have any luck. So that said, while these people were scary to her, she didn't think that they were the primary cause of all of the feelings of cold and all the nightmares she was having and creepy things because aside from the real world issues of those men, she was also constantly finding her doors unlocked. And it just made her paranoia escalate. She had her locks changed and then she got bars installed in her bedroom windows, which kind of block the view and give it a weird energy, like make it feel like a prison. Yeah, that sucks. Yeah. And if you looked at those Zillow photos, then you probably saw it, but the bars are still there. And to give you a sense of the city in this moment, this is when Charles Manson was living in San Francisco and when the Zodiac Killer was active. It's around 1967. So... One night, she woke up at 2 a.m. and noticed a blood-colored stain spreading on the ceiling above her bed. She called 911, and when the cops went upstairs to to check, she started seeing them bring people down in handcuffs. And the guard dogs are being taken away in an SPCA van. And when they saw the upstairs apartment, they were like, do you want to come see what has been going on up here? What? For some reason, they let her in, and she said everything was completely destroyed. Things were in heaps on the balcony and they looked like they'd been burned in like a ritualistic way. Toilets were clogged and overflowing, but maybe that's what was leaking underneath to the bedroom. If they were like completely overflowed, you know how sometimes sewage water and pipes can look like orangey, red, brown, but it was just disgusting. And so the cops also found tons of cocaine and heroin and other serious narcotics. So here's the worst part. The two dudes who actually rented the apartment somehow managed to flee down the fire escape and evaded the police that night. Wow. And unlike in the moment that Earl strangled her, the police did not stay with her overnight. And so she was left alone in the building after. And it was obviously terrible. At one point, she's laying in bed trying to pass the time until morning when someone rings her doorbell and she doesn't get it. She's kind of like frozen in bed. But she swears to God that she heard the two men creep around the side to the like other balcony and say, we know that you're the one who called the cops, sister. Oh, God. The next morning, she hired a guard and then redecorated to change up the vibes, whatever. But at this point, she says that 1000 Lombard Street was just behaving as if it had a life of its own. 
while the guard and the window bars were somewhat helpful, her sense of safety was totally shattered. And there was always a weird wind rushing through the house and like knocking windows open, even though they were totally locked. And then doors would slam behind her. She was feeling sluggish all the time. Maybe it was the lingering pneumonia. She had nightmares filled with that creepy blaring laughter from Earl. And she would just wake up gasping for her breath and hearing footsteps like leaving her bedroom. At what point is she going to just go, I'm moving out? Today, she says that's the most common question she gets. And the reason she didn't move out was because when you're living through something like this, you don't think that it's going to end in this pinnacle, horrible story. But also because her lease wasn't up yet. She had a discount and she didn't really have money. She was also exhausted from all of this. Like a move was the last thing she needed. Yeah. Also remember, she still has her job and everything. It's not like it's infringed upon her life where she can't function anymore. But it does eventually. So by the time it's 1968... And those men have moved out. She feels slightly better. It's September. It's time to promote her first book, How to Be a Party Girl. And the kickoff tour is happening at Ghirardelli Square. And I won't get into all of these details, but as she's preparing for the national tour, she did a local interview for press and the reporter completely botched it and wrote a really nasty headline from party girl to call girl. And then she would get tons of anonymous callers harassing her and bullying her. So she's like doing her best, but life is looking bleak. Everyone is kind of horrible to her. And eventually this ends up being a lawsuit, but she tries to keep her normal busy schedule and she's just exhausted. She would get like bad vertigo in her apartment anytime she was home and have to like steady herself on the walls. She would try to laugh it off with Mary Lou, but things were getting serious. So right after the Ghirardelli event and this horrible newspaper smear article, her and Mary Lou get a break from the house and they go to New York City for the first part of the press tour. They stay at the Algonquin, which is literally the most haunted hotel in New York City. It's kind of insane that they stay there. That's where Auburn's first wife lived. Yeah, it's notoriously haunted. Let's go. Yeah, but well, yeah, I don't know. (laughs) But despite that, they have a great visit. She finally felt three away from the house, but she does pull Mary Lou aside at one point and says, I have a terrible feeling something tragic is going to happen soon. A month passes after the book tour. She gets back to San Francisco. It's October 1968. On her first night back, She's welcomed home with a call at 2 a.m. saying, I'm watching you. You're going to die. Uh, hmm. That entire weekend, she slept off a migraine and felt so dizzy and could barely speak. And it sounds like this entire month was just horrible for her. By December, though, one good thing starts happening. She starts getting calls from a handsome and successful man. He's called Al Wilsey. And she didn't feel like she was in a place to date with everything that was going on and also because of her career. But... He tried her again in January of 1969 and invited her over to dinner on a whim. He lived in a penthouse on Green Street about six blocks away. So she could see her home from his and she's like, yeah, I'm going to go. So they end up hitting it off big time at dinner. And from there, they begin dating. She says that he did not like the apartment either. So she only really feels better when she's outside of the house and with him especially. But one week, he's away on business and she has another bout of illness that escalated with her tossing and turning one night, dripping in sweat, hearing eerie laughter, the endless, tedious ticking of a clock she couldn't find. And she said that she felt like she was dying. So Pat took an extra dose of her cough syrup to try to fall asleep. And simultaneously, she couldn't remember if she had already taken her antibiotics. So she took more and also two sleeping pills. What? Yeah. So she does fall asleep pretty quickly. I mean, but honestly, I remember when I had mono in high school and I would be like, I don't care how many Advil I've taken. I need another and I feel so sick. And then it would make me even more sick. Hmm. When you're feeling that bad, you're like, what can I do to make this go away? So she falls asleep. 
but then she quickly wakes up having uncontrollable spasms. She managed to call her older brother and she's basically like, come help me, and then drops the phone. Then she manages to pick it up and she dials Al and she says, I think I'm dying. At that point, she's slipping in and out of consciousness and felt totally numb. And then she remembers vomiting and the paramedics and Al being there and then waking up really late the next day. But the press dubs this a suicide attempt. And she says that it's the effects of all the things that she self-medicated with mixed with severe dehydration and exhaustion from a respiratory illness. Regardless, everyone, including herself, was seeing this as her hitting rock bottom. So she planned to take time off work. And at this point, she's mostly staying at Al's every night or traveling to LA for work. And things were getting less busy with work now that her book was out the door. So Mary Lou decided she was going to take a sabbatical in Italy. And this makes Pat and Al even closer. And they decide to get married May 14th, 1969. They honeymooned in Hawaii and caught up with Carolyn, the cousin, over dinner, who confessed that every night that she lived in the house, she fell asleep to that song, Nightly which is partially what drove her out of there. And hearing that story validated Pat, but she also just noticed an intense darkness brewing under Carolyn's usual bright facade. So when they get back to San Francisco, Pat is all excited to start packing up and moving her stuff out of the Lombard Street apartment. But the entire house had a sort of abandoned look to it, even though there were upstairs occupants now, normal ones. She was sad because she'd been living there at this point eight and a half years. And for most of it, things were great and it kind of represented her independence. I'm sure it was bittersweet. But one day she was packing up and Mary Lou was back at this point and they were catching up. And Mary Lou mentioned that her eldest daughter, Jeannie, was getting married. They didn't have the means for a huge, massive honeymoon trip. She was going to let Jeannie stay in her house on 2249 Webster, which is in Lower Pacific Heights, for a while. And she suggested that she stay in Pat's place so that she could get everything taken care of on her behalf and Pat could just enjoy being a newlywed, living with Al. So she was like, yeah, you know what? Actually, that's probably a pretty good setup. Um, You should stay here if you're comfortable with it. Oh, no. And so on June 18th, 1969, Mary Lou and her 13-year-old son, Jimmy, arrived at 1000 Lombard. A few mornings later, Pat went over to pack and to have breakfast and also just to make sure that Mary Lou was okay because she noticed that some of the like nausea and vertigo symptoms were emerging in Mary Lou. So she said, actually, you know what? It's been pretty nice. It feels kind of full with the new tenant and Evelyn is home for a change as well as my son being here. But that being said, around by the third night, she just couldn't really sleep anymore and she was uncharacteristically tired. So they have breakfast and it was clear to Patsy Lou that Mary Lou's spirits rose when she was in company, but she did seem down. And that night, Patsy was scheduled to arrive at uh, some kind of award ceremony and she was bringing Al as her date instead of Mary Lou who had tentative plans to see a movie with Jimmy. But she called Mary right before to check on her. And Mary Lou said she decided not to see the movie because she was tired and Jimmy was still out with friends anyway. That night, Mary Lou also spoke on the phone for about an hour with another friend and had one glass of red wine to wind down. And then she got ready for bed. At 4.01 a.m. of June 21st, 1969, the SFPD called Al and Pat's place and they said, are you the lady who lived on Lombard Street? There was a fire and we have a female body. Ugh, poor Mary Lou. That sucks. (laughs) 
so in an effort to tell the full story within our consistent time frame, we are going to pick up where we left off next week in our bonus episode about what happened after Patsy Lou gets a phone call from the SFPD. And we will also be joined by special guest Stephanie Campos, an astrologer and healer who can help us break down the basics of astrology and also hopefully check out Patsy's birth chart to see if there's anything in there that might explain some of her experiences at this apartment or just the apartment's general bad vibes. (laughs) So stay tuned for the second part, which we will drop on Wednesday, October 26th. Thank you so much for listening. If you like what you heard, please leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts. And when a mean tarot card reader screams at you for not making him a sandwich, throw it in his face and curse him right back. I thought it was a drink. Yeah, but like sexism, sandwich, 